Uh, chapter 13. If you're new to the Bible, when I say the chapter number, that's the big number. And when I say the verse number, so we're going to start in verse 30, that's the small number. John chapter 13, big number, verse 30, that's the small number. If you're new to the Bible, the, the book of John is in the New Testament. Uh, it's the fourth book in the New Testament. You got Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, and then John. All four of those telling us about the earthly life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 13, and we're going to begin in, excuse me, verse 31 for our reading. But let me offer a word of prayer before we get into the sermon. Father, indeed, we do thank you for the freedoms we enjoy in this country. These are not freedoms enjoyed by every country. And so we pray that you'd help us not to take them for granted. And uh, Lord, we pray that you would help us also not to be indifferent in the protection and the furthering of freedom. Well, there have been times where our freedoms have been rolled back rather than pushed forward. But most of all, Lord, we pray that you would help us to rejoice in that freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. We've been freed from the law. We've been freed from sin and death. And we have been freed to worship you with a clean conscience, with a clean, a new heart uh, to come into your presence, Lord. We've been freed to serve you. And that freedom, no matter what happens with earthly freedoms, is always ours. We pray that you'd help us to understand that freedom and to use it in a way that is fitting according to your will. To use it to serve, to use it to love. We pray that you would help us to fix our minds on your word this morning. That we might be changed by it and helped by it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you're visiting with us this morning, you have landed in the sort of middle of a series that we've been doing called Being the Church. Uh, we are a, a young church, just a little over four years old. Uh, and one of the things that churches young and old have to do from time to time is go back to the basics. Go back to the basic teaching of the Bible on what a church is. And so we spent about five weeks doing precisely that, thinking about the church as the people of God thinking about Jesus as the only head of the church and ruler of the church, thinking about what it means for us to be the body of Christ, each of us body parts in his spiritual body, united to him and united to each other, getting our life from him. And so we've been thinking theologically about the church in these first uh, five uh, sermons, but now we want to change gears a little bit and say, what does all that theology look like? How do you know the theology is working itself out in the life of the church? What's, what's it involved practically? And to do that, we're going to have a, a series of sermons through the rest of the summer on what's called the one another passages. The many passages in the Bible where Christians are called to do this or that with one another or for one another. And these one another's do uh, is exactly what I was saying a moment ago. It helps us to, to see this spiritual reality in invisible action. It takes the truth about our union with each other and our union with Jesus, and it, and it puts flesh on it. It helps us to know how to recognize it, how to see it. 
Because our relationship with Jesus and our relationship with each other is not fundamentally transactional. You do this for me, I do this for you. It is fundamentally relational. We are related to each other. There is a a glue that binds us together. And there are the obligations and the duties of, of Christian fellowship that fall upon us all. So this morning what I want us to do is to take the the first one another in this series, and it's love one another. That's the main point of the sermon. And you'll wonder why we'll spend another 40 minutes unpacking so simple a sentence as love one another. And I want to see that in John chapter 13, 34, and 35, but I want to give us a little context as we, as we come there. John chapter 11 represents something of a turning point in John's story about Jesus' earthly life. In John chapter 11, at that point in our Lord's earthly ministry, death moves to the foreground. John 11 records the death of Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha. Uh, The chapter is filled with a couple of days of of grieving Lazarus' death and and filled with a couple of days of mourning. But But it's in John 11 that we find the shortest verse in the Bible. Verse 35, Jesus wept. I don't know how many of you grew up in churches where little kids sometimes had to recite Bible verses. That was the go-to verse right there. Pastor called on you, Jesus whipped. (laughs) But it tells us something about our Lord's compassion, doesn't it? It's also in John 11 that Jesus' opponents begin to step up their campaign to kill Jesus. You see that there in verses 45 to 47. Jesus himself is anointed for death in John chapter 12. The woman comes and uh, anoints him with oil. And it's in John 12 that Jesus begins to explicitly teach that he must be lifted up, a euphemism for being killed. He explains that by his death and resurrection, he intends to save the world, all those who would believe in him. You see that in John 12, 44 to 50. So far from stopping God's plan, when Jesus' opponents plot to kill him, they're actually advancing God's plan to sacrifice his son and to raise him from the dead three days later in order to rescue sinners from their sin and from God's judgment so that they might enjoy God's love and God's forgiveness. And then we come to John 13, which includes two powerful scenes, really. The first scene, verses 1 to 20, really demonstrates Jesus' humility. I mean, he's the Lord of all. He's the God of all creation. But we see him washing the feet of his disciples. We heard in our call to worship in Psalm 103 that, that we are but dust. He's the Lord of all creation, Washing the dust off of dust. That's humility. That's lowliness. The second scene tells us of Judas' betrayal of the Lord, verses 21 to 30. And it's on the heels of Judas' betrayal and and Jesus' humility, all wrapped up in the cloud of death and the sunlight of resurrection that we get our text for this morning. You might say our text finds Jesus at peak focus on what he's come to do 
and on what he wants his disciples to be. It's in this context that we find our verses. Look with me in John chapter 13, beginning in verse 30. 31, excuse me. When he had gone out, that's Judas, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Look with me again in verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If you're taking notes this morning, I want to hang our thoughts on sort of three observations. We want to see a new commandment, a new command. Number two, a new model, a new model. And number three, a new sign, a new sign. We have a new command, a new model or example, and a new sign. Let's take this new commandment, the first part of verse 34. It's stated there really simply, love one another. Now, for this to have some force, I think we have to remember who's speaking here. It's Jesus. And we might have to ask ourselves the question, on what basis does Jesus have to command anything of anybody? Well, and that's when we're brought to remember that he is God the Son. He is the Lord of all. He's the creator of the universe. He is now speaking in, in all of the sort of prerogative and power of deity. He's God. I don't have the ability to just roll up on you and give you a command. Deb ain't got the ability to roll up on you and give you a command. Mike ain't got the ability to roll up on you and give you a command. But because Jesus made us, he owns us. And because he owns us, he has the right to command us. In this simple action of saying, I give you a new command, he's as much as saying, I am God. For only God can command creatures. Now, it's a simple command with deep and difficult application. How many of you all know that? I mean, to understand the command to get it right, we have to understand at least two things. First, we've got to understand what love is. We've got to understand what love is. It's common in our culture for people to think of love as basically a feeling. I may never forget, though I was a young boy, the, the day I saw my brother get in an argument with my mom over his girlfriend. He wanted to marry his girlfriend, and my mom, with good reason, didn't approve. And they're standing in the kitchen going back and forth, and he keeps talking about, I love her, I love her. My mom kind of got tired. I said, boy, you don't know what love is. He said, yes, I do, yes, I do. She said, what's love? You know, when your mama asks you something like that, you, you really need to back up, right? So he's like, what's love? 
And he said, love is when two fools care so much about each other that they don't care about themselves. <laughs> now, I was about nine. And, I was, and even I was like, no, nah, that don't sound right, bro. <laughs> that don't sound right, man. <laughs> and my mom kind of smacked her lips and rolled her eyes and said, mm-hmm, I told you you didn't know. <laughs> It was all about sentiment and feeling that, that would cause you to lose your mind, right? That ain't love. And see, that, that idea of love as feeling or sentiment has really emptied love of anything stable and deep and permanent and resolute. So in the minds of too many people, love has become a a passing thing, and perhaps even irrelevant. Some of you will know the name, if you're old enough, Anime Bullock. All of you will know the name Tina Turner. It's the same person. Uh, Tina Turner, you recall, had this tumultuous, abusive relationship for many years with her husband uh, and co-performer Ike Turner. She finally escapes Ike and escapes the abuse and gets herself together and she makes a comeback, and I remember when she came back, man, she came back cut, man, you know, just singing and ready and talking all fabulous, you know. And one of her sort of breakaway hits when she came back, some of y'all may remember, asked the question, what's love got to do with it? And it became an anthem for a whole lot of people. And, and you remember she goes on to say in that song, love is just a what? Secondhand emotion. She was basically making an anthem to the irrelevance and uselessness of love. I want to commend to you or, or contend with you that they didn't understand love. That's not what Jesus means when he commands his followers to love one another. He's not exhorting us to empty sentimentality, and he's not exhorting us to something that is irrelevant or something that we could sort of put on and put off as insignificant as T-shirts. He's got something stable and deep and enduring and resolute in mind. In the Bible, love is one of the strongest forces in the world. After all, it's love that compels Jesus himself to go to the cross to endure the judgment of God in the place of sinners. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And the Bible says that among all the virtues, it's love that binds them all together. Colossians 3 verse 14. It's love that holds all the other virtues together in perfect harmony, the Bible says. And Paul says, listen, of all the virtues and things that we might celebrate, of all the gifts that might be given to the church, 1 Corinthians 13 verse 1, love is the greatest of them all. In fact, the Bible says without love, we are nothing. We are clanging gongs. We are loud cymbals. So love is far from a secondhand emotion, beloved. It's also more than emotion itself. The biblical idea of love implies committed action. Love is something you do, not just something you say or feel. And this is where love gets deep and difficult. So keep your finger there in John chapter 13, if you will, and turn with me to 1 John 
chapter 3. For the same person who wrote this gospel was a follower of Jesus, a, a leader of the, of the early church. He also wrote letters to the church. And in 1 John chapter 3, he's meditating still on this great teaching of our Lord. He's meditating on love. 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. When you have it, say amen. Oh, not yet. I heard a not yet. 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. And this is what John says there about love that helps us to know that it's committed action. By this we know love. So if you want to know what love is, here's how you know. That he laid down his life for us. That's Jesus. We know what love is because Jesus died for us. And, and here's, the, here's the result. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. See, John got it. The kind of love that Jesus commands is the kind of love that makes a demand on us. It calls us to put our money where our mouth is, so to speak. If, if we say we love, then we must also show we love. And if we don't practically show our love by laying down our lives for the church family and giving to meet the needs of our brothers and sisters, then, then we have to wonder, as John does in this text, we have to wonder if our hearts are not closed, number one, and wonder, number two, if God's love is really in us. Lovelessness is a serious spiritual problem. It's not to be taken lightly. Biblical love is costly because it's a commitment not only to feel or say, but also to do what is good for others. So love is committed affection plus committed action. That's what we see in the Bible. So first we have to understand what love is, but then secondly we have to understand who the targets of love are. Jesus has some people in his scope here. He has some people in vision here that he wants us to lock in on when he commands us to love. So back in John chapter 13, verse 34, we not only see the command love one another, but notice now it is one another that are the objects of love here. It is the other disciples. Now, there are other places in the Bible that call us to love other people. So Jesus would call us to love even our enemies, right? So this is not Jesus saying, hey, the church should be this kind of little clique where you only care about each other, but you don't care about anybody else. That, that's not what he's teaching. But he is teaching here a, a kind of concentrated focus that we are to love the brothers and sisters who are the objects of this command. One another is the language of belonging, togetherness. It's glue language. It joins together individual disciples into a, a whole. It's, it's the kind of language that implies membership and unity. The, the one another's really are an alternative way of practically express, expressing what we were saying a moment ago, our spiritual union with Christ as the body of Christ. So the question becomes, how can a church family fulfill this command 
if they don't know the one another's in their local church. A church can, can it? See, anonymity, not knowing each other, not being known, anonymity represents one of the greatest threats to love. And anonymity is sometimes one of the greatest acts of disobedience, too. If we don't know each other, we can't love each other, beloved. And if we will not make ourselves known in the church, we cannot say we're following Jesus' command, can we? So as a church, we, we try and make anonymity impossible or less likely by doing a number of simple things. Number one, this is why we practice church membership. All right? Church membership is not only, it not only reflects our union in the body of Christ, it, it helps us dry up anonymity and, and sinful independence. And eliminating anonymity and sinful independence allows us to obey Jesus with each other as it becomes clearer who the one another's are. But this command to love one another is also why we call the members of the church to, to vote on new members and to vote on resignations, which we will, Lord willing, do on Thursday at our members' meeting. That vote is a simple act that ratifies our mutual commitment to keep covenant with each other, to love each other. And this command is, is why we take the time to produce a membership directory. In that little book, you'll find all the one another's. Their faces, their names, their addresses, their contact information. It, it's so that we might know who we are committed and obligated to love before Jesus and in our covenant with each other. And this command to love one another is why we renew our church covenant at the Lord's Supper, which we'll do, Lord willing, next week, and why we renew our church covenant at members' meetings. We want to keep in mind the promises that we have made to each other, where it says we will be devoted to one another in brotherly love. With humility and gentleness, we will patiently bear with each other, forgiving, encouraging, and building one another up, exercising watchfulness over each other, and admonishing one another when necessary. Or a little bit later in that covenant, we will rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, helping to carry each other's burdens. See, our Lord's new command should create a new community that's marked by love. That's the new command, that we would love one another. But number two, consider the new example, the new model. So not only do we have a command in John 13, we also have an illustration. The Lord Jesus says that we are to love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. So Jesus is the model. Jesus is the illustration. Jesus is the example of what this love looks like. So if we're to love each other just as Jesus loved us, we've got to ask ourselves, well, what did it look like for Jesus to love the disciples and Jesus to love us? And our Lord loved his disciples daily and practically. He provided for their needs. He protected them from their enemies. He ate with them. He traveled with them. He spoke with them and taught them. He prepared them for the journey ahead. And we don't think about it often because we 
we're seeing the Lord in his humanity in some ways. But do, again, do you recognize the humility that's on display as Jesus walks and travels and talks with people? If he wanted to, he could snap his fingers and be at the next city. But he is walking with dust. And I'm sure the disciples had all kinds of things they wanted to talk with Jesus about, all kinds of ideas they had, but, but he's omniscient. I'm sure that wasn't necessarily an exhilarating intellectual conversation for Jesus. But he talks with him. He meets with him. He answers their questions and teaches them truth. Just daily, practically doing life together. Walking, talking, sleeping, eating. But supremely, Jesus loves his disciples. He loves us and he loves those original disciples there in the text. He, he loves us sacrificially. Again, that's, that's what 1 John 3.16 is saying. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Jesus gave himself up for our salvation. He set aside his right as king of the universe. He, he, he voluntarily suffered on the cross for our sin, and he did this so that we could become something new together with him. The Bible says if Jesus has done that for us, then, then we should not only do that for each other, but we have actually entered into a brand new kind of life. Not the regular life that's here for a few years and dies, but an eternal life that never ends. An abundant life, life to the full. A life filled with light and joy and glory because it is the life of God now in us through faith in Jesus. And that only because he loved us enough to sacrifice himself for us. That's how he loved us. And so I, the question this morning I want us to consider is how can we give ourselves up for one another so that together we become something new in Jesus. That's the pattern. Jesus gave himself up for us so that he could make us something new in himself. And we're being called now to love each other just as he loved us. So how do we give ourselves up for each other so that together this newness that Christ has created fills us more and more and works itself out? in clearer and clearer fashion. Let me suggest to you three applications from John chapter 13. The first is we can give ourselves up for each other by washing each other's feet. All the, <laughs> all the 10 year olds like, Ew. I once played a weird game at a, um, what do you call those parties when God's about to get married? A bachelor party. It's been a long time. The bachelor party. It was a Christian bachelor party, so y'all stay with me now. Don't go wherever your mind's taking you. It's a Christian bachelor party where they blindfolded all the guys and um, the, the, brought the ladies in, sort of significant others, wives, and girlfriends. And, and they had the ladies take their shoes off, and the guys had to rub the ladies' feet blindfolded and figure out which woman was there. <laughs> that was crazy. I mean, you know how you feel at the thought of touching somebody else's feet? 
even in a game like that, it requires some humility and some dying to self and uh, some letting go of some stuff. I got it wrong because I just lie like. <laughs> but here, again, the Lord of glory humbles himself to the point of washing the feet of his disciples. And, and Jesus says explicitly now, when he does this, he says explicitly to them that this is, this is a model that he's leaving for them, an example that, that they should follow. Look there in verses 14 and 15 of John 13. Notice what the Lord Jesus says there. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. This is why some church traditions practice foot washing. I don't think that's a commandment. I don't think that's an ordinance like baptism in the Lord's Supper. But I also don't think it's wrong to follow that example, whether literally or spiritually, to humble ourselves with each other, that we might love each other in the places where our pride is tempted to get in the way. See, pride and love can't really travel the same road. Or they do, they're going different directions. And our pride will often speak to us in such a way as to encourage us to, to, to be haughty and to hang back and to refuse to, to love in those places where love requires humility, like confession and repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation and serving people. Our pride will make it okay that we are thought of as servants, but it will refuse to be treated like a servant. Here is Jesus saying, not only think of me as a servant, but follow my example of actually being a servant. Because what he does here is actually the task of a, a menial household slave. The lowest sort of position in society. And here Jesus is voluntarily taking up that role to demonstrate that we love in part others by humility. And by that humility, we become something different together. Something better together. But notice the second thing in John 13. He not only uh, calls us to love by washing each other's feet, but he also calls us to love by enduring betrayal and disappointment. That's what we see in verses 21 to 30. If we're going to be a new community marked by love, we'll have to keep going when we're betrayed. Judas betrays Jesus. And listen, beloved, I know betrayal hurts. Disappointment hurts. When we're betrayed, we find it difficult to trust, don't we? When we're let down, we find it easy to draw back and to separate ourselves from the ones who hurt us at least, but sometimes to separate from others who are associated with the ones who hurt us. And if we're not careful, we can, we can grow bitter, can't we? And even feel justified in not just withdrawing, but even hating and criticizing and belittling those who have hurt us, can't we? Some of us have been betrayed before. 
you know what a knife in the heart that is? So I'm not talking about a light thing here. Some of us feel betrayed, but weren't. And that feels real to us too. We were maybe just let down, but we weren't betrayed. It's not the same thing. Betrayal is worse. Judas, one of Jesus' own followers, sold him out to be killed. And the sign of that selling out was a kiss. He didn't just forget to come to prayer meeting like he was expected to do. Judas didn't merely break a promise or something. He he sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and led the enemy right to him. Here's the question. What did Jesus do when betrayed by Judas? Jesus loved the disciples anyway. He loved them through the betrayal, through his suffering, even to death. None of us have been betrayed quite the way Jesus was. As real as our betrayals are and as much as they hurt, None of us have been betrayed as deeply and, as, and by as many as Jesus. And now that same Christ lives in us who believe. And that same power is at work in us who believe so that we now have the opportunity and the power and the ability to endure even betrayal and disappointment, to endure in love. You want to see a church transform? Let its members commit to working through disappointment. Let its members commit to working through betrayal. Let its members commit to the the kind of truth-telling that that maybe at first cuts a little bit, but actually then allows healing. That gets the pus of resentment out. That gets the the bile of anger out and and allows the the, the flesh to close and to heal and maybe not even leave a scar. If we want to be something different together, let's love in such a way that we endure disappointment and betrayal. And as a third thing, if we're going to be different, we'll not only be humble, And we'll not only endure in love despite failings and betrayals, but but number three, if we're going to be different, we want to to give glory to God, not ourselves. We'll live for God's glory and, and not our own. So see that there in verses 31 and 32. When he, Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify himself and glorify him at once. The key word in those sentences you probably figured out is glorify. It's a whole lot of glory being exchanged in those two verses. But what's amazing about Jesus' word here is Jesus understands that the moment of his betrayal is also the moment of his glory. Now, when Judas goes out to sell him out, now is the Son of Man glorified. It's a remarkable connection between suffering and glory. 
It's a remarkable joining together of an evil act committed against him with the shining and the fame and the glory and the praise and the worthiness of God whom Jesus serves. Jesus models what it means to live a life aimed at God's glory. He models what it means to tie hard things of the Christian life to the great things of of God's name. Jesus is willing to suffer betrayal and to keep on loving because it means the Father will be glorified in him and he will be glorified with the Father. When loving others gets hard, do you look at it and think, God's about to be glorified if I keep loving? That's what Jesus is doing right here. He's been sold out. No, he's about to be killed. No, he's about to die an excruciating death. In fact, in just a little while, he's going to be praying, Father, if there's any other way, let's do it that way. He's going to pray till he sweats great drops of blood. Love just got real hard. And Jesus looks at that hard thing, and the way he thinks is, God's about to be glorified because I'm going to keep loving these saints until I save them. Now, real talk, I got to work on that. I got to work on that. But that's the example that he's setting for us. Right? That's the way he thinks, and we are called now to have the mind of Christ. We are called now to follow him in his suffering and in his glory. And how many of you know the pattern of the Bible is first comes suffering, then comes glory. And if you break apart suffering and glory such that you avoid suffering for Christ's name, you don't have any claim on glory when he comes. Here's our Lord looking at the most unimaginable glory uh, suffering possible to be judged by God whom he's only ever known love from for all the sins of the world for all people of all time all the righteous anger of God being poured out on the son that he loves and he says now I'm about to be glorified And the Father will be glorified in me and will glorify himself in me. So together we just fellowship again in glory. And that's what he's calling us into, into this fellowship of glory. So, beloved, when you see some place where love looks hard, do not say to yourself, God ain't called me to that. Don't we do that? No, I don't think that's God's will because that looks hard. (laughs) Don't do that. Think of Jesus on the night that he was betrayed, looking to the cross, looking to the hard things of suffering for our sin, who said, now I'm glorified. Endure suffering like a soldier. Love through the suffering Because you know that the Father's going to be glorified in you and you are going to be glorified with the Father and with Christ when his glory appears. And we will be transformed, beloved, if we love like this for his glory 
and not our convenience. So, three questions. Who should you humbly serve? Whose betrayal or disappointment must you endure in love? And whose glory are you living for? Which brings us to the third thing we want to consider this morning. We've had a new commandment and a new example. Now we have a new sign. We are to love one another as Jesus has loved us, so we must love one another. Now let's consider the new sign in verse 35. Jesus says there, by this, by your love for one another, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You see, beloved, the thing about loving one another as the body of Christ is that love does not stop with us. This kind of love you can't bottle up and keep selfishly. Supernatural love multiplies and overflows. This is what Paul has in mind when he says in Romans that God has poured his spirit into our hearts who cries out, Abba, Father. But, but that same spirit causes love to overflow the banks of our hearts and to, to wash over others as well. And that love becomes a sign that all people can see. He says, by this, your love for one another all people will know that you are my disciples. It's not only a clear sign, but it's an easily read and interpreted sign. For many years, I thought everybody's eyesight was basically like mine. Chris and I would be driving down the highway at night or rain, and I noticed at some point, as I aged, that just became a tense experience for me. Get kind of tight and up on the wheel and real hard. People drive by me. I'd be like this, you know. And I thought everybody saw like I saw. And so we'd be driving somewhere, sign be coming up on the, on the road. And I, I get to the sign, and as I'm passing the sign, I can tell what it said. <laughs> you know, and Chris would be like, you can't see that sign? All judgy. You can't see that sign? I'll be like, you can't see it either. Yes, I can. I, you can't see that sign. Can't nobody see that sign. Take your glasses off. And we'd be back and forth. We'd be back and forth. I could see the physical sign, some, something big and green on the road, but I, I didn't know what it said. Wasn't until I went to the eye doctor. And that man turned all them knobs. And actually, before that, I went to get my driver's license at the DMV. And the young man said, hey, put your head in the thing and then read the lines for me. So I put the head in the thing. He said, read the line. I said, E. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, read line four. So I closed one eye. <laughs> and I said a few things and guessed at some things. And I stood up hopeful. And he looked at me, he looked at me like, I, he, I don't think he ever looked at anybody like that before. He looked at me like, he said, I'm going to have you do that again. <laughs> and so he said, push your head all the way in. So I pushed my head all the way in. <laughs> Put my head all the way in and I read it again. He said, you wear glasses? I said, well, I have them. <laughs> he said, you're going to need to come back with those, <laughs> right? When I got my glasses, man, I could, I could see everything. It's like a whole new world. I can see the leaves on the tree. I remember, I remember turning out on the road and looking at the, I can see like all the little holes in the, in the ground and stuff. 
I mean, there's a whole lot of detail in creation. <laughs> could read the signs. I could not only see, but interpret. And that's what's being said here in verse 35. And if we love each other the way Jesus has loved us, that people who don't know Jesus personally will see that sign, will see love, and also be able to interpret it as these folks are Jesus' disciples. Nobody else loves like that, with that kind of humility and self-sacrifice. Nobody endures through betrayal. Nobody seems to do this not for their own advantage, but only for the glory of God. Don't nobody live like that in the world. These folks are different, and what I recognize in them is love, and that kind of love is only taught by one master, Jesus. In the New Testament, certain spiritual gifts are sometimes called sign gifts. For example, the gift of miracles is a, is a sign gift. It's a gift that provides a sign, a signification, a pointer to the message, that the message is actually authentic. And so Jesus could go about healing and preaching the kingdom, and he would say things to disciples like this. Listen, believe the message, but if you don't believe the message, believe the, the signs that are pointing to the message. And then believe the message. It's a sign gift. Think of Hebrews where the writer says that um, salvation was declared at first by the Lord. And it was attested to by those of us who heard him. They, they, they testified to it. Then there's, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit. That's a striking phrase there that God was testifying to that salvation had come in Christ and the way God was testifying was through these signs and miracles and wonders that were being done in the ministry of Christ and in the apostles' ministries. Now, I went on that little rabbit trail to suggest to you that what verse 35 is saying is that love is a sign gift. That if we love each other like this, it signifies, it points to, testifies to the reality that we are actually following Jesus as his disciples. And it's striking because Jesus is basically giving permission to the world to judge us on this basis. Sometimes when the world tells us that we're hypocrites, they're right. Sometimes when the world says the church is full of mean, nasty people, they're right. But beloved, let us be committed, each and every one of us here, that they would never be right about us in that regard. Because we are committed to loving one another from the heart. So how visible is our love for each other? Is it visible and plain enough that others can see it and read it as a sign of true discipleship? As I'm preparing the sermon, I sent an email to the leaders of the church, the pastors and deacons, and said, hey, we're meditating on love, and Jesus is talking about visible love that's compelling in this way. What, what examples have you observed in the body of this kind of love. And some of them wrote back um, good, I think, illustrations. Jonna wrote back, and I like the way she approached this. She talked about the ways that many members of the church 
love by supporting the dreams of other members of the church. You know, when you support somebody's dream and encourage them and help them, that's an act of love. She talked about the girls linked luncheon with AC and Nicole had a vision for and Jadine and Jacqueline and Miss Carol joined them in pulling it off and supporting it. She talked about the Ridge Place cleanup where Deb wanted to clean up the neighbor's yards and her yards and a lot of you guys came out and spent that Saturday digging and mulching and planting. She talked about Friends of Ketchum, a vision the Lord's given her and a passion that she has and how Michael's using his gifts and talents to support the group and Jacqueline also and, and how Marquita's participation and thoughtfulness in the group has been, in her words, immense. Supporting each other's dreams an act of love. Precious wrote back and made mention of Tasha Barnes, who seems to me to be everywhere serving. But her babysitting for families in the congregation and the way she does many all-day jobs, many times unpaid, while seeking better employment opportunities for herself. And then she mentioned Jonna conspiring to purchase a car for our sister Deb and setting up insurance and putting tools in the trunk and all kinds of things like that. Selfless act of love, which many of you participated in. Precious also mentioned Rick and Sean's open door, open heart policy that serves so many in this church family. And she pointed to Miss Bimmy. And the way Miss Bimmy has been persistent in loving and caring for younger sisters in the church. Tim Ballard was catching a plane on the way to Egypt with his wife. He could have invited all of us. That was not loving. <laughs> and he made special note of the ways in which some have cared for our sister, Miss Teresa. Not just her children, but her wider number of children like Hannah, Miss Carol, and others. And he mentioned particularly Miss Carol, again, helping by babysitting their kids to give them flexibility for Mara, a stay-at-home mom, to come every Monday night to Bible study. We go on and on. But our love should be daily, should be practical, should be visible, not because we're putting on a show, but because that's the nature of love. When we love others, people tend to notice. And Jesus is calling us to give that sign in our love for one another. Well, let's conclude. What examples come to mind for you? Let me invite you to spend the day thinking on those things and praising God for them. Pray they will be multiplied in our church family. We are a loving body, but we're not there yet. Pray that God would give us more grace to love more faithfully. The Bible literally calls us to a conspiracy to love. And we'll end with Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, where the writer says there, let us consider, and that word in the original language, consider, is the word that has this sort of connotation of conspiracy. They are plotting and scheming. Let us plot and scheme. Let us consider how to stir one another up 
to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day of Christ drawing near. So let's make that our perhaps most significant application from this morning. That we would be 150 some odd people in a committed conspiracy to stir each other up to love one another. Let's pray together. Father, how deep your love is for us. That you would give your only son to make us wretches your treasure. And now, Lord, how wonderful is that love that you would call us to share it with one another. And this we'll do if you give us grace. We won't do it in our flesh. We won't do it if it's just down to our strength. But if by your Spirit you would bear the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, if you would produce love in us and through us for each other, a love that embraces humility and washes feet, a love that endures through betrayal and disappointment, a love that seeks your glory above all things, if you will work this in us, O Lord, we are convinced that people will see the truth of the gospel in our lives. Know we will follow Jesus, and by your grace, you will draw others to Jesus as well. Help us, O oh Lord, to love each other deeply from the heart, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.